Welcome to episode 1177 of Effectively Wild, the Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and also our Patreon supporters, mostly our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. I am marveling at the news that Andrew Kashner is an Oriole. You're back back off my banter. (laughs) I figured we would get to that one way or another. Get to. That's that's how we start. This is going to be another one of the team preview episodes. We have Dennis Lynn on uh, of The Athletic San Diego to talk about, and also The Athletic Los Angeles to talk about uh, the San Diego Padres. We also have Sahadev. Sharma of the Athletic Chicago to talk about the uh, the Cubs. But first, Andrew Kashner, <laughs> the most inevitable of all free agent inevitabilities. Am I am I wrong? Are yeah. you wrong? Did, but this this is this we, always fell this way. Did we explicitly call this one, or does it just feel like we did? Because I don't I don't think we I don't, I think this was so inevitable. I don't think we actually bothered to call it. It was just assumed. I it mean, was just assumed. <laughs> it's I don't know. I mean, nowadays you don't. T- to find teams that will like make a move that you say oh that's a team x move like it doesn't happen as often as i feel like it used to i I think Uh generally teams are always trying to go for the most talented player or the greatest return on investment or whatever and some teams you think of maybe as pitching teams and other teams as more offense first teams but you don't really think of that many teams as having a type at this point except for the orioles whose type i guess is just like the least interesting <laughs> the, the unsexiest signing you could possibly imagine and it will happen in mid-february every single year <laughs> and, and it's always like not even like a seventh starter to fill a rotation gap because they always have two starters because this is what they do every year to try to shore up the rotation and you can't shore up a rotation with someone who has to be shored up himself so <laughs> I, I don't know if this is the definition of insanity is just doing the same thing every year or what but I mean, there was a time when it seemed like Dan Duquette had a knack for finding guys late in an offseason, and I don't know if that knack still exists or not, but yeah, Andrew Kashner, now a Baltimore Oriole. What is it, two years and uh, 16 Yeah, with some added bonuses he could make? Yeah, there's some additional perks. I this is, reportedly they've been working on this since December, which I don't know. Like, look, <laughs> you're Andrew Kashner, you're the Orioles. You know that you are going you're going to end up with one another. So I don't know, maybe you need to like shop around, do your flirting, dating around for yeah. like a few weeks, get it out of your system. But this was always going to happen. It's kind of like a it's like a Potter Stewart thing where I don't think that we can like put a I don't think we could define exactly what the Orioles type is, but you can always look at the free agent market and just point out like the three guys that are just complete Orioles. And in this offseason, mm-hmm. it's Andrew Kashner and uh, it's Jason Vargas and it's either <laughs> Melky Cabrera or John Jay. I haven't settled on which one I think is more likely, but it's just that kind of I don't even I can't even be too critical because from 2012 to 2016, the Orioles won more games than any other team yeah. in the American League. It was amazing. Even last year, they weren't terrible and a lot of things mm-hmm. went wrong. So you could argue that maybe, you know, the Orioles have done the opposite of win the offseason every single offseason. But the teams that win yeah. the offseason tend to suck because you're just 
over you're doing too much and and people overrate the significance of of the big flashy moves so there is sense in waiting until the end of the offseason to make signings because you can get Mm -hmm. bargains and you know what andrew cashner for two and 16 whatever it's fine it's absolutely fine it's just so boring and they're probably going to sign (laughs) jason vargas before i'm done talking (laughs) well you had cashner in your free agent offseason contracts draft you took the under on mlb trade rumors prediction which was 20 million so nice. another 4 million tacked onto your total and yeah i mean andrew cashner i don't know what else there is to say i'm i'm guessing the orioles are going to have some rotation problems again this year and that this will <laughs> not change that dramatically and i mean for anyone who is wondering why we're saying that andrew cashner is boring he he did have a 3-4 ERA last year, which is encouraging, but nothing else was encouraging. So <laughs> he uh, he had a Kazuhisa Makita-esque strikeout rate, another guy we're going to talk about later in this episode. He struck out, uh, what did he, he had 86 strikeouts in 166 and <laughs> two-thirds innings. That's not good. So he had the uh, unsightly defense independent stats that one would expect there so what was so weird to me was that as i was because i was desperate for something to write about so i wrote about the the orioles and the cashner but as i was writing that the jaime garcia signed with the blue jays for half the commitment and i they're the yeah. same age garcia the, so the interesting thing about jaime garcia compared to andrew cashner is jaime garcia is better at his job and he got half the money and the years that andrew cashner did so i don't i don't know you, you never know maybe there's a guy who would rather play in Canada than go to Baltimore but it's not like Garcia was avoiding an offense friendly division it's not like he would have turned down if the Orioles offered Garcia the money that they offered Cashner then he probably would have taken it over the money that he got so I don't I don't know but you know what you look at Jaime Garcia just doesn't feel like an Orioles kind of guy Cashner exactly (laughs) the Orioles kind of guy (laughs) yeah it's uh it's pretty incredible so you did a a little exercise talking about when things go wrong for super teams could you summarize that quickly because we were talking recently about how it just seems like certain teams now are just unassailable and their projections are so strong and there's no way anything could go wrong so you looked for a few recent examples of times when it did go wrong so is there a a common element to those stories yeah uh, just so quickly first of all I I got curious I went back to the start of this Orioles peak 2012 Mm, and so from 2012 through 2017 I looked uh, at all team starting rotation wins above replacement just because you know the Orioles have always been terrible or they felt terrible better still than the Royals Marlins Angels Rockies Padres and Twins Twins in last place in rotation war so way to go Orioles you've almost been as good as the Reds anyway the super teams uh when we get all of our projections and the market is done doing what it is the market is doing we will have our final projections and as we look at our final preseason projections what we will see is that indeed there is some tier of super teams the cubs are up there the astros the dodgers the nationals are super yankees red Sox, indians there's there's like a lot of there's almost so many super teams that you can't by definition call any of them super teams but there are really super teams and for the second year in a row at least it's going to feel like this baseball season is very predictable because we're going to see the best teams and then everyone else and so as just a a quick little exercise what i wanted to do today at fangraphs or thursday i guess was is go over some of the recent super teams uh based on preseason projections who didn't make the playoffs and i found a few i have projections going back to 2005 and i looked for teams 
projected before the year to win at least 95 games, just an arbitrary cutoff. There were 12 teams that met the mark, and three of them actually missed the playoffs. There were the 2008 Mets, who uh, that team had just traded for Johan Santana. They were going to have a healthy Pedro Martinez back in their rotation after he missed a lot of the year before. Mets projected for a better record than anyone else in baseball missed the playoffs. That same year, the New York Yankees, 2008, projected for the best record in the American League, and they missed the playoffs. They finished with an 89-73 and record. They weren't bad, but they just mm-hmm. didn't make it as the Rays emerged and, uh, and the Red Sox were better. And then I think the, the most memorable and the clearest recent example is the, the 2015 Washington <laughs> Nationals, who were yes. just a... Just a real catastrophe, despite having one of the most incredible offensive seasons that's ever been offensively seasoned. Somehow, mm-hmm. the biggest... I i would say that the, the 2015 Nationals are one of the greatest disappointments in recent baseball history. And that team had one of the most amazing seasons in recent baseball history that was not projected to happen. So somehow, the Nationals still managed to waste that. They also pulled this off after having added Max Scherzer to their starting rotation. So pretty shocking what the Nationals did. But they were, of course, bypassed by the Mets that year. Like Jason Wirth, Ian Desmond, Denard Spann, and Anthony Rendon were all either hurt or bad or both. And so they just lost like 16 wins above replacement between the years just from those four players alone. So even mm-hmm. though the Nationals underachieved their you know, peripheral numbers and and based on their underlying metrics, they could have won 90 games or whatever. They still were. They gave the division to the Mets. And I remember that offseason going into opening day, talking about the Nationals, like this team looks invulnerable. They had like a projected 14 game advantage over second place in the National League East. And they lost the division by seven games. You have to remember the 2015 Nationals if you want to have, I think, a mentally healthy approach to analyzing the season coming on because it's going to feel like the odds are set in stone and that none of these teams could give up their favorited position. But, you know, if you have seven or something clear favorites, odds are one of them is not going to end up on top. Yeah. So, yeah, you have a bunch of injuries stack up or Matt Williams is your manager. Things can go wrong. So it's not likely to happen, but it happens from time to time. There are no guarantees. Everyone knows you can't perfectly predict baseball. So one last thing I wanted to mention. Oh, by the way, Andrew Kashner will make an extra $1.5 million if he wins the AL Cy Young Award. So <laughs> factor that into your expectations. The last thing I wanted to mention is a tweet by Marcus Stroman, who lost his arbitration case with the Blue Jays. This was his second time going through arbitration, but he tweeted, Lost arbitration is what it is. Looking forward to going out and dealing again. The negative things that were said against me by my own team will never leave my mind. I'm thick-skinned, so it will only fuel the fire. Can't wait for this year. I thought it was amusing first that he said he was thick-skinned, but that he will never stop thinking about <laughs> <laughs> these things that they said about him. I guess what he means is that it, it like won't get him down or it won't stop him from performing or something, but it sounds like the opposite of, of thick skin, really. But anyway, the point I want to make is you hear these things from time to time about players who just went through arbitration, especially if they lost, probably, and it's just an unpleasant process, really, for both sides, particularly for the player, aside from just, you know, the fact that players don't get paid what they're worth in arbitration. It's just not fun to sit there and hear your employer 
argue for why you should make less money. This is why teams generally try to avoid arbitration or one of the reasons it just can sour the relationship sort of. And so I saw a lot of backlash to this, like, you know, does this mean that Stroman won't stay in Toronto and is the relationship ruined and all of that? I did do an article on this back in 2012 at Baseball Prospectus where I tried to figure out whether going to arbitration and especially losing in arbitration will make a player more likely to leave his team in the future. And I found that there was no evidence that that was the case, which is interesting. I forget exactly what I did. I think I looked at like a control group of guys who didn't go to arbitration versus guys who did and then looked even more specifically at guys who won or lost their cases and just looked to see if they were still with that team a certain amount of time later. And I basically found that there wasn't much of a difference in either direction, which I don't know. I think it's it's kind of interesting because you hear about this with arbitration. You also hear about it when teams pay like a superstar the minimum salary instead of giving him some tiny nominal raise that some teams will give and you'll hear you know why is this team so cheap they're gonna make this guy leave down the road turns out i don't think guys generally harbor these grudges for years and then make a decision about that when it comes to free agency i don't think they say well you said that nasty thing to me in arbitration three years ago so i'm out of here i think generally these wounds just tend to heal pretty quickly so that's just something i tend to point out in these cases that it doesn't mean that the relationship has been severed forever i'm sure it was not fun for him to hear these things and he probably will remember them but ultimately when you're coming down to make a decision between your old team and your new team you're still probably going to go with the place you're comfortable playing and the team that is giving you the most money and your teammates and your manager and all the other things that players use to decide where they're going to go next, more so than an old insult from a few years ago. Yeah, I would imagine from the player's perspective, you're not playing for the general manager or whoever is in the arbitration room insulting your performance. Mm. You are playing for the city where you've played and you're playing for the players around you and the coaching staff. The coaches aren't in there being critical. It's not the fans in there being critical. It's not your teammates in there being critical. So if a, if an executive or realistically some analyst has something to say about your performance that suggests maybe you aren't worth the money that you're asking for in arbitration, I mean, that doesn't feel great, but that's one or two of like hundreds of people who are a member of an organization. And it's just Mm-hmm. It's unrealistic to expect that to have to cause lingering damage. Now, I say that uh, in no way meaning to suggest that you did not have any basis for running your research and and trying to find out because it would have been interesting if the opposite were true. But uh, yeah, yep. people people get over it. You know what? You're in a long term relationship for a number of years, sometimes 10 years. You're going to fight. You're going to get over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, people can leave the organization there can be front office turnover so the people who were running the front office when you were in your arbitration case might not still be running the front office when you get to free agency so whole lot of reasons why that can be forgotten oh, or man. outweighed by something you know else. What, you know what you could do you're the blue jays mm-hmm. right and then you're going into you're going into arbitration and you know that you're going to argue against marcus stroman you use some sort of guy who looks like or woman some sort of guy or woman who looks like an analyst who presents the argument you want to present 
and then you win the case and then you tell Strumman after, hey, sorry about that. We fired the analyst and it wasn't <laughs> even a real person. But then everybody's okay. I mean, sure, Strumman gets a little less money, but everyone's pleased. Yeah. Then you get goodwill out of the whole thing. <laughs> That'd be even better. I like that strategy. All right. Okay, so we will take a quick break and we will be back with Sahadav Sharma to talk about the Chicago Cubs. Say hello to Chicago. Say hello to Chicago. Say hello to Chicago. All right, we are joined now by Sahadav Sharma, who works for The Athletic Chicago and really set the trend, I think. He was working for The Athletic before everyone else in the industry was working for The Athletic, so (laughs) they're all copycats. He is at Cubs Camp in Arizona, which he has recently returned to his hotel from, and he is joining us now. Hello, Sahadav, how are you? Good, how are you guys doing? Doing pretty well. And the Cubs very conveniently made the major move of their offseason not long before we were scheduled to talk to you. So we can now discuss that. Should we start there? I I guess just, I mean, we know that the Cubs needed a starter. Yu Darvish is a good starter. They signed him. Maybe there's not that much more to the story, but is there more to the story? (laughs) I guess, where did the pursuit come from? When did they decide to do it? What was their motivation if it was anything other than the obvious? Yeah, I I think there is slightly more than that. You know, I think simply put, yeah, it's basically they needed a starter and he was the best one on the market and made the most sense uh, in their eyes. Uh, I think uh, the way it played out was when the offseason began for the Cubs, they knew they wanted multiple starters added to the rotation. Uh, Lackey and Arietta were, you know, were likely gone in their eyes. Uh, They never closed the door on Arietta officially until obviously... uh, Darvish came in the fold, but I think when Theo Epstein was sitting up there telling us that they desperately needed more pitching right after the season ended, he was thinking along the lines of you Darvish or Alex Cobb. And I think everybody in that front office believed Alex Cobb just made sense financially. Now, I'm sure I know they had plenty of debates about uh, what that number was between Cobb and Darvish that made it more sense for Darvish. But I don't think they ever thought the price would be close. And when when, I think it was a combination of things as this offseason progressed and we got closer to the winter meetings, they realized Cobb's asking price was going to be significantly higher than what they were comfortable with. The slow market push Darvish's price way down and suddenly it didn't really matter if Cobb's price was coming down significantly because the value that they saw in Darvish made it clear because he was the guy that they wanted they just didn't think it would be a realistic price they never thought this price would be what it is now and you know as a, as i think there was a meeting during the the winter meetings that made it uh, seem like okay something may get done we should get more serious about this and they had that meeting with you, Darvish, in Dallas at the Ritz Carlton. And and uh, I think that set the tone for both sides. The Cubs were impressed with Darvish. They they felt he'd fit in. 
Darvish's camp was very impressed with the Cubs. Uh, I think they the, their pitching infrastructure impressed Darvish. The way he'd be used was something he was very comfortable with. I think it just uh, made sense for both sides. And and you know here we are now with the Cubs, arguably with one of the best rotations in baseball. And I'll say for me, I probably don't give Darvish enough credit for how good he has been. And it's probably because you see those two World Series starts, and that's what lingers in your mind. And suddenly you start to think that this guy's not as good as he really is. You watch him pitch, you look at the numbers, and and I, I'm starting to realize, okay, I got to give this guy a lot more credit than probably I was in my mind. This is a, a top tier pitcher. Maybe he's not in the Kershaw, Chris Sale, Max Scherzer range, but he he's not far behind when he's pitching at his best and and healthy. The Cubs believe that that they'll get that for the first few years at least of this contract. So the Cubs have given out. I guess it's not the most recent free agent contract to a starter anymore. You've seen Jaime Garcia and Andrew Cashner on the bo- off the board, but at least they've given the most recent free agent contract to a starter who's good. But they also give the first one, and for the longest time, it was the Tyler Chatwood contract and nothing else in terms of free agent starters who had signed. Chatwood, I believe, signed with the Cubs at the start of December. The Darvish signing. It's uh, it's good. It's powerful. It's analytically uninteresting. It's a uh, good team adds good pitcher. The Chatwood one is more interesting because you uh, you look at him and that it's like it's a bet on it's a bet on stuff and it's a bet on stuff playing up outside of Colorado. Clearly, the Cubs have a lot of faith. I mean, to give him three years and thirty eight million dollars, even though he's had Tommy John and hasn't thrown a whole bunch of strikes. Clearly, there's evidence that the Cubs like what they see. But what do you see in particular, and how do you think Chatwood's chances are of of coming in and being more than, I don't know, like a, a flashier Eddie Butler. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, they, they are, I talked about the pitching infrastructure and the plans that they may have for Darvish. I, I think it, those people are really excited with what they could do with Chatwood. I've talked to some people with the Cubs who, who believe that getting him out of that environment allows him to use his pitches uh, how he's always wanted to and he wasn't really able to in Colorado. I think it helps, you know, tangibly and intangibly because there's going to be he's going to be more confident in his stuff. He's going to be pitching the way he wants to pitch and he felt he couldn't pitch that way in Colorado. Uh, and then obviously we all know the numbers. If you're listening to this podcast, you're you're well aware of the spin rate stuff and and all that stuff that that makes uh, Tyler Chatwood an attractive option for these forwards thinking clubs uh, maybe all 30 clubs are now forward thinking clubs but i think what i expect from him is is certainly uh much better numbers wise that the straight numbers i expect him to be better with the cubs i'm curious about health i'm starting to uh, there's so many players that I'm, I'm trying to remember numbers for but i believe chatwood hasn't hit the 180 mark with his uh, ever in his career uh, innings wise so you know that I want to see what type of pitcher he can be as far as eating innings but now he's pushed back to the back of the rotation he hasn't hit the 160 mark that's what it was he hasn't even hit uh, reached 160 innings in a a season so you know those are the type of things that I look at and wonder you know what are the Cubs getting I think that they're certainly getting a valuable pitcher and someone that could pop I'm very curious to see how good he could be because I wouldn't be shocked if he's one of the better pitchers on this rotation. Now that there's so many good names, it's hard for me to say he's going to pop up and be the best pitcher in this rotation when you have Quintana, when you have Darvish uh, and Hendricks and Lester. I mean, it's it's 
that suggesting Tyler Chatwood's going to be the best of the bunch is, is a really aggressive bet. But I, I would not be surprised if he has a really good, really strong, impressive breakout type season being away from Coors and with with the, the right people kind of guiding him and, and helping him towards uh, maximizing that p- potential. Yeah, so it looks like one of the best rotations in baseball. It's entirely guys that have been signed or traded for from other organizations. Of course, on the position player side, it is almost the opposite of that. A lot of homegrown guys, and that's been the strength of these Cubs teams. And one of those guys I want to ask about is Albert Omora, because I think he is maybe less nationally known than some of the other homegrown Cubs hitters. He did come along a little later, or at least debut a little later. Centerfield was sort of a, a mishmash for the Cubs last year. There was a lot of Almora, but then also a lot of Ian Happ, a lot of John Jay, even some Jason Hayward mixed in there. So is this just Almora's job every day? Are they going to try to get creative and do any sort of rotation here, or are they just handing him the position? And if so... How good do you think he can be? Yeah, I don't think yet we have a clear answer on if he'll be the everyday guy. The only other options, of course, are Jason Hayward or Ian Happ playing center field. I know the Cubs are high on Ian Happ. There are a lot of people inside that organization that love his attitude, love his edge, and believe that's something that the Cubs are lacking now that John Lackey's gone, that they want that fiery type of guy that, that uh, you know, the typical baseball red ass that, that we hear about all the mm-hmm. time. I think Ian Happ kind of fits that mold, and the Cubs believe every team needs one of those guys to kind of uh, push them past uh, maybe difficult to play off a uh, opponents that may be trying to get in your head or be too aggressive, things like that. They, they believe Ian Happ has a has a strong role on this team. And and that, that doesn't even talk about how much uh, he provides offensively. Uh, Almora, I believe, will be the primary center fielder, though. This is, you know, we're six weeks out from opening day. A lot can change. And, and Joe Madden does like to utilize his depth. What you can expect from him is someone that makes a ton of contact, if he's going to be successful, though, he needs to hit for a high average. I believe last year he hit just below 300. He's going to need to hit around there 280. And between 280 and 300 is what you want to see from him. He crushes lefties. He slowly was improving against righties. And I think that's the biggest step you want to see from him. Avoid the breaking ball away from righties. I remember last year he, he talked about how he basically, uh, w- before two strikes, against righties he'd he'd started to just break down the zone and anything that wasn't in a specific part of the zone which was basically inner half uh towards his body anything over the plate inner half he was going to be aggressive with anything that even looked like it was going to be on the outer half of the plate or away before two strikes he wasn't touching that he he was not interested in swinging at those pitches he was trying to really learn how to limit he's he's an aggressive he's he's grown up as an aggressive hitter you know a high school kid drafted out of high school that could hit his way uh everywhere you know and and early on in his minor league career he hit 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 and that's how he thought he was going to make his way to the big leagues and and they've kind of worked with him slowly to to kind of reduce that aggression you you know and Joe Madden loves to talk about how you don't want to coach aggression out of a guy because sometimes that's their greatest strength he he talks about it a lot with Javier Baez but I think that holds true with most players It, it can be his strength because his contact is so impressive his contact ability is so impressive but he also knows that a lot of adjustments need to be made and I was impressed with how how 
much he improved against righties. But at the end of the year, he was a solid option, maybe not the best option as far as center field or wherever he was playing in the lineup. He may not have been the best option against uh, uh, righties, but he was getting to the point where you could start seeing, envisioning a future where he's the everyday center fielder and you don't need to platoon him. But he's he's going to be a very different hitter against lefties and righties. He gets on base a lot more. He's a mo- lot more patient against, against lefties and he can hit for a lot more power against lefties. So I, I just want to see the progression against right-handed pitchers continue this year. If that happens, like you said, he was kind of a forgotten guy. He's the first draft pick of this re- Theo Epstein regime, mm. probably the first prospect that everyone got hyped up about, uh, and, and he quickly fell off because, you know, A, he did he wasn't too impressive on the offensive side through, as he got into the upper minors, and B, you have guys like Chris Bryant and Addison Russell and and all these others that are are making impressions, and then people just kind of forgot about Elmora. The other thing I'd say about him is his his defense was hyped as potentially elite, you know, Gold Glove level defense. I'm not sure if if it's there. I I didn't see that. I saw a really good defender, especially when he got more comfortable and realized that he needs to be the one uh, dictating things in the outfield and not being passive. But I'm not sure if I I think his average speed basically makes him a 60 defender, which is still great in center field. You'd love you'd love to have 60 defenders in center field. I'm not saying he's uh He's a detriment at all in center field, but there were rumblings that this was a future gold glover, and I, I think he's a tick below that. Mm-hmm. Well, so you look at the Cubs, and it seems like they still have more talented position players than they have positions on any given day. There's probably going to be someone on the bench who could start for most teams in the majors, if not all teams in the majors, at least when the game begins. So why do you think they have gone with that instead of say trading from that depth to sign a starting pitcher did they just figure well we have the money we can just go get you darvish and tyler chatwood so we might as well just hang on to these guys because you could make a case that well they should have traded kyle schwarber at some point or you know there are teams that would be happy to have javi baez as a shortstop and you could get a lot for him in that role and so is it just that madden likes flexibility and they haven't had a really pressing reason to do something because you you know could make a case that they could have or should have traded from strength at some point yeah i think uh it's it's kind of multi-layered there i they it's not that they're against trading from that depth uh they definitely explored it they they have over the years and definitely this offseason and i think even at times some of us uh, in the media assumed that that was this was the offseason where it would happen finally happened one of those guys from the major league roster being traded for pitching i think they love that depth theo epstein is borderline obsessed with depth uh he his his goal going into every season is to try and think of what are all the things that can go wrong and try and limit those to make sure that you have so much so many backup plans that any sort of catastrophe outside of you know chris bryant anthony rizzo and three starting pitchers going down time something crazy like that happening he wants the depth to make up for any sort of the the things that will happen that they know will happen that always happen during a season. But yeah, that they have the money to spend on pitchers so they can they they can take different routes here. They don't have to they don't have to trade from that depth. I also think that that they weren't getting what they felt was value for in the trade market. After getting Quintana, they weren't desperate for that under control young pitcher 
who they're going to have through 2021, 2022. You know, that that's what they're looking at. If they're going to trade a guy like Baez or Russell or Ian Happ even or Schwarber, they, you know, Schwarber may not impress the rest of uh, the baseball world, but I'm telling you, this front office believes that he's going to be an offensive superstar. When they traded Eloy Jimenez for Quintana, the way they looked at it is, is for their future, they had to make a choice between Eloy Jimenez and Kyle Schwarber, and they went with Kyle Schwarber. So, you know, I I think Eloy Jimenez is going to be a superstar, and Kyle Schwarber, I think, still has that potential to be an offensive superstar. So it's it, they, they love these position players. That's part of it. They didn't find a deal. I, I think, you know, who who are you going to trade one of those players for? The, the name that pops up first for me is Chris Archer, and that's just not going to happen. I, I don't see a scenario where the Cubs and Rays match up. The Cubs and Rays have talked about different pitchers in the past, tried to make trades for different pitchers in the past. These two teams evaluate talent very differently. It, it's very hard when that happens to come up with a, you know, a trade that makes sense for both sides. It's it's very hard to come to an agreement when you when you don't value assets in the same way. But um, specifically on Chris Archer, I've what I've heard is they've never really talked much about P- Chris Archer. That may have changed this offseason, but heading into the offseason, they never s- exchanged names for Chris Archer. So uh, as much as the Cubs have been linked for Chris Archer, they kind of understand that th- that's just not going to happen for them because that value that that's going to cost so much and they don't really agree on what it would be. Uh, I, I I'm sure you guys could name a couple other pitchers that would make sense. Basically, my thought is they're they haven't lined up and felt that it was worth it to give up one of those guys and not just spend the money to go get a a pitcher to fill holes. So the Cubs currently, especially with Darvish count as one of baseball's uh, quote unquote super teams. And whenever you have a super team, there are few vulnerabilities. And as with probably any team besides the Yankees, a potential vulnerability just because we understand them so poorly is the bullpen. And looking in this bullpen, I like the Brandon Morrow signing. I think Steve Ciszek is useful. I think Carl Edwards Jr is better than he looked in the playoffs and and so on and so forth. Mike Montgomery gets to be out there as well. But there is a, a very interesting pitcher that the Cubs traded for in the middle of last season. Justin Wilson threw 17 and two-thirds innings with the Cubs, and he walked 19 batters, which is bizarre. And previous to that, he had been one of the best effective shutdown lefty relievers in the game. So even though I recognize this is a season preview and I'm asking you a specific Justin Wilson question about the second half of 2017, what happened? Yeah. And what do you think is going to happen in the season to come? Yeah, I think a lot of that is the Cubs. Uh, well, I talk, I've talked to a lot of people inside the organization and outside the organization. I'll start with this. I'll say during the playoffs, I had numerous scouts from other playoff teams coming up to me asking me what happened to Justin Wilson because they thought that was an amazing move for the Cubs and they were mad because they want they were trying to their team was trying to get him so ton of playoff contenders wanted Justin Wilson scouts all agreed there were no scouts that came up to me and be like man I, I saw that Justin Wilson deal blown up in their face I saw this and this and this as an issue none of that ever happened which happens on occasion right you know you you talk to people and they're like yeah I never really liked that guy that much everyone was confounded by this this was a very odd situation from talking to Cubs people and this is on the record they felt 
that one of their issues that they're trying to rectify and that they believe they're they're in the process of rectifying is is onboarding. So especially in the middle of a season with pitchers, they feel that what can happen is if you're not comfortable in, and you're not comfortable in the situation, and then you go out and have a bad outing, and then you go out and have another bad outing, that just leads to more and more issues. And then that you're not comfortable off the field. You're now suddenly you're not comfortable on the field, and and there's no easy way for them. They didn't have a way to fix that. They didn't. They weren't doing in their minds. They weren't doing a good enough job of making those people more comfortable. Once they realized, oh, this guy's not comfortable in his skin in Chicago. How are we going to fix this? Justin Wilson's a prime example. I think Adam Warren's a, a great example of a guy that was great before he came to the Cubs. Was with the Cubs for half a season and was in a was a throw in back to the Yankees for in the Chapman trade. And was a uh, was great again once he went back to to the Yankees that season. It was it was one of the odder things I've seen, and that was probably the first hint of it. Uh, and and you know there are some other uh, players that that you know really weren't expected to make big splashes, but really struggled with the Cubs. And I think, uh, you know, they, they get a lot of credit for their ability to unearth pitchers, but that was something that they were a little frustrated with. Uh, and I think Justin Wilson kind of brought things to a head. I think that is a part of the reason why Chris Basio was left. I think, you know, it's not one single reason, but that was one of them. I, I think they, they felt that there was a, there wasn't a mesh there. There, there wasn't a, not everybody was on the same page uh, on every subject and they don't want that to happen again in the future. That's the reason that that I think Justin Wilson struggled. I think there were some little mechanical things that built up also over the second half, but I think most of that was stemmed from the original discomfort uh, of, of arriving in a place and not finding your footing right away. And, and, you know, someone made a point to me that, you know, this is a bigger issue with pitchers because a position player gets traded, they have a bad week. They're not going to, if, if you're a big enough uh, acquisition, you're not going to bench that guy after a bad week, right? He's still going to be in the lineup every day. He has more time and, and every day he has an opportunity to get out of that funk. A pitcher goes out there, especially a reliever. You don't know when you're going to get that opportunity to come out there and make up for that last disastrous outing. And you you walk that first guy or you, you go fall behind 2-0, instantly all those issues pop up back in your mind and you're overthinking everything. So I think it's a lot of things that we can't fully measure, but I, I, I do believe that it, as long as he's comfortable and, and feels good and, and he just goes out there and, and, and pitches like he can, that's going to be a huge add to the, you know, not really an add since he was there for the last two months of the season, but I think it's a legitimate add to the bullpen and makes them significantly better. And, and a guy that even I forget forget to bring up and 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 talk about how uh, how important he could be to the bullpen. Where do you stand on the two great debates of our time? Can Kyle Schwarber play defense, and can Mike Montgomery be a starting pitcher? We know what Mike Montgomery thinks about whether he can be a starting pitcher. Not that he needs to be at this point, but there could come a time this season when he would be called upon to do that. So. Do you think that those guys can do those jobs? Should they do those jobs? Yeah, I when it comes to Montgomery, you know, I'd like to see I want to make sure that the command is is more consistent. I love the ground balls. You know, he's not going to strike out, you know, 30%, even 28% or anything like that. I'd like to see a strikeout rate above 20% from him. 
and and limit the walks to at least league average when he's starting. But yeah, I, I think he can be a solid starter. I don't know if he's if he's anything more than just an average starter at best, which is still valuable, still a really valuable piece. He's not the the reality is he he only gets that opportunity as a six starter for the Cubs. He's just not going to be in the rotation this year. And and unless there's injuries, it's going to be hard for him to find a spot in the future in the rotation. It's just a, it's kind of a, a not a perfect situation for him. But but he's a very valuable piece of their bullpen, the way he can be used. Uh, as far as Schwarber defensively, you know, after this offseason and the way he looks, and I, I want to see him out in the outfield. I want to see if there's any difference. He's faster. He's uh, he's more athletic, seems to be just quicker in general. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it is instincts out there in defense and just, uh, you know, being able to make the play. I I know he'll put in the work. If he didn't, you know, I'd feel more comfortable just saying, yeah, I don't know if he's ever going to be an average defender if if he hadn't put in all this work in the offseason to completely reshape the way, you know, his body, his body. He looks completely different. It's it's striking how how much he's changed. So so I want to give him just let's see how he looks in spring training. Give him a few games. If there's a difference if he looks different, then hey, maybe he can be an average. I don't know if it's going to be more than that. I, I think that'd be hard to push yourself just because you you lost so much weight and and got stronger. Does that mean you can all of a sudden become a great defender? I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> but uh, but I wouldn't rule out him becoming an average defender because of the combination of the body type change and just the work ethic that he puts in. He'll he'll do whatever he can to get there. He'll tell you 100% that it's going to happen because that's just the way he is. So I, I want to give this kid the benefit of the doubt because I, I've seen him work and I've seen seen the body change. And uh, it, it's nothing about there's nothing for me to look in the past to say that confidently. That's for sure. I If, I, if I'm judging just by the past, I'd say, yeah, he's going to be a, a below average defender for his career, but he can be made up for with the bat because I believe the bat is significantly better than than what we saw last year. So we're coming up on year four of a uh, a starting shortstop who is currently recently turned 24 years old. And at this point, Addison Russell has been one of the greatest defensive shortstops in baseball. No question. He's also got a WRC plus of 90. Uh, last year was his worst offensive season of the three. He walks some. He has a little bit of a strikeout problem. And he, uh, to whatever extent, there's been a home run spike in baseball. That was poor phrasing. There's been a massive home run <laughs> spike in baseball. But Addison Russell has not really been able to partake to this point. So I guess it's a bad question to ask, is there more? But to what extent has enthusiasm for Russell's ability to reach his ceiling waned, given that he hasn't seemingly made that much progress over the three years he's been in the majors? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. It has the enthusiasm? I like how you phrase it too. Is there any enthu- is that enthusiasm kind of lacking right now? I would say, yeah, maybe just the re- just the fact that there's a debate in the Cubs front office of who's who should be the starting shortstop between Javi and Addison. I don't think you have that conversation even in last what you know last year in april may or june you know i think maybe you start to see that once once javi uh once addison got hurt and javi was out there for about a week and a half and started to get comfortable even i who i'm a big addy supporter as far as defensively over 
Javi. I, I'd say it's I, I would not argue with people. I'd argue with people before that. But after watching him for a month handle that spot, I, I'm not going to argue with people that suggest that Javi's the better defender at shortstop. But as far as offense goes, this is a guy that, that has made some tweaks. He, he tweaks a lot of things along the way. I liked the way he looked that last month. The numbers don't fully bear it out, but he looked better at the plate. He was taking pitches a lot more frequently that he would have swung at before that. He started to hit the ball really hard the last couple of weeks of the season. And even in the playoffs, the results weren't there as often as you wanted, but I saw a lot of balls smoked. I won't, for, I, I can't even forget about this. There's a, uh, the Steven Strasburg game where he just looked insanely unhittable. Game four of the NLDS, the wind was blowing in like 15, 20 miles per hour. One of those awful days in, in, at Wrigley Field. And and he rocketed a ball that, that would have been long gone on any day. And the wind just knocked it down and, and, and it, you know, it was caught in the vines. He was the only one that put even that even came close to to putting Goodwood on on a Steven Strasburg pitch that day. Uh, I think he struck out in his other two at bats against Strasburg. But but that that was about what that that's the type of stuff that Strasburg had that day. Uh, but he has these flashes where I'm like, well, this guy's going to be a superstar. They're just too far, few and far between. The consistency on offense, I just can't see. He didn't get into a rhythm last year, that's for sure. There were injuries. He was a mess off the field, just, uh, you know, went through a divorce. There were suggestions of, you know, spousal abuse there. That's, you know, that's, he needs to figure that out before he can become anything on offense, of course. So is that, I don't know off the field what how much his life has changed if he's matured uh all those things need to happen before he can he can take steps forward i believe i I definitely believe that that impacted his play especially in the first half of the season well as is often the case with these previews we've gotten through the whole thing without mentioning many of the reasons why the good team is good but i will just (laughs) assume that everyone listening knows that chris bryant and Anthony Rizzo play for the Cubs and they're good and they'll continue to be good and we will just wrap up in the traditional way you've done these things before you know the drill we must (laughs) press you for a win total prediction for 2018. You know, I'm I'm kind of feeling early vibes of that hunger that that team had in 2016. I like when this team isn't coasting and and kind of is angry about people overlooking them. And I, I think that may be happening. I think people think the Dodgers are better. People think the Astros are better. People would say the Yankees are better. I, those are the teams that, you know, you those are they're perfectly legitimate cases but the cubs have a group that that don't that like to kind of be hungry and overlooked and and want to be aggressive uh, and prove everyone that hey we're still the best team out there you know maybe that's true <laughs> of all contenders maybe that's a key aspect of being a great team uh, but i think we're going to see a really great season for them and and i'm you know uh, I haven't thought about this until now i, I forgot you guys pressed me like this <laughs> and and I'm, i put on the spot so yep. I'll, you know what? I'm going to be aggressive uh, and say 99 wins for the Cubs. Mm. I, I think they win 99 wins, uh, win 99 games, and and I think you know they're going to head into the playoffs as one of the clear favorites, if not the favorite. 
You're not fooling anyone. 99 is 100. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't go that triple digit. Can't do it. <laughs> yeah. After a team wins the World Series, you're not allowed to play the no one believed in us card. We, we, all, <laughs> no. we all believe that you're sure. going to be good, Cubs. So find, find they, some They're going to play it as much as they block. can. Yeah. Oh, believe me. They'll play it up. <laughs> all right. Well, you can find Sahadov in an increasingly crowded athletic clubhouse you can also <laughs> find him on twitter at sahad of sharma always a pleasure thank you thanks guys thanks for having me on okay let's take a quick break and we will be back with one of Sahadov's many new colleagues dennis lynn to talk about the padres And to talk about the increasingly interesting San Diego Padres, I think we have the uh, what used to be the Padres beat writer for the San Diego Union Tribune, but is now the Padres beat writer for the Athletic San Diego. Also a going to be doing some part-time Angels work, but concentrating on the Padres, we have Dennis Lynn, same Padres guest as last year. How are you doing, Dennis? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. So the uh, the Padres of the past few years have been not very good, but they've been differently not very good. Of course, they they tried to push the chips forward a few years ago to try to win quickly, and that was a complete and utter disappointment. And if you if you look at the Baseball America organizational talent rankings, you can see that sort of push reflected back in 2016. The Padres ranked 25th in terms of farm system talent. The team has not been good since then, but before last year, the organization bumped all the way up to ninth, and this year they're ranked third place behind only the Braves and the Yankees. So how is the enthusiasm in and around the Padres now, given where they've been and, and given how thin the system has been even just a few years ago? I think there's always a section of a fan base, and the Padres admittedly have a smaller fan base than most teams that always pay attention to the farm system. And that section of fans for the Padres is as probably as excited as they've ever been about the farm system, given uh, the high-ceiling talent they have down there, led by Fernando Tatis Jr., who's uh, in big league camp or going to be in big league camp sh- shortly for the first time. He's only 19, and but he could be uh, up. Uh, he really pushed for it by September of this year. Although more likely, given service time concerns, uh, you probably see him sometime in 2019. But uh, these are the kind of guys they haven't had in the longest time. So uh, when you consider how many prospects they have and how much ceiling they have, yeah, most of them aren't going to work out. But if you will, and that's all you need to uh, make it really interesting at a big league level. Can I ask about Austin Hedges, who is uh, no longer part of the prospect crop? He's up, but I've been fascinated by him for a few years now because he was reputed to be a defensive prodigy and still perhaps is. So if you look at Austin Hedges's Fangrass page, it says he was worth about half a win or so last year. If you look at his baseball prospectus page, it says he was worth three and a half wins last year, which is probably surprising for a guy who had a 262 on base percentage. But of course, baseball prospectus is factoring in framing and blocking and throwing and all of those things think that Hedges is the defensive savant that he was always alleged to be. So how do 
they think of him? How does the team think of him and his pitchers think of him? Do they think of him as like one of the mainstays, the main contributors, valuable guy, or is he kind of future backup catcher material? That's a very good question. I think it's all dependent on his offense and how that comes along. I don't think they have, you know, sky high expectations that he's going to take a huge step forward. Uh, but that was obviously a major weakness for him this past season. Not a lot of play discipline, a lot of you know, prolonged slumps where he didn't really do much at all, you thought. But his defense, um, kind of as you alluded to, is so good already, even at this young age, that, you know, it's at this point, knowing how young he is and he's still got a ways to go, they, they view any offensive contributions essentially as gravy. Um, but uh, that said, I mean, if he really wants to be, you know, Brad Ausmus, he can be that, but if he wants to be an all-star, he's got to take steps forward on offense. So they, that's where they think a guy like uh, Matt Stairs, the new hitting coach, can uh, hopefully simplify the message for him. He's already said, Austin's already said he's made some uh, changes. He hasn't really disclosed what, but I think he's going to try to keep his head more still, uh, see the ball better this year, and uh, hope that leads to some more success at the plate. A couple months ago, the Padres did a, a grave disservice to my own workplace in hiring away my friend, co-worker, and, uh, and manager, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron was brought in to head a uh, a research and analytics department for the Padres that I understand there was someone in that role before who uh, who left the position, I think, at the start of December. But what changes has the organization undergone off the field this offseason in particular? And and what is is this just an attempt to sort of catch up to where other teams have been before, or are the Padres trying to do something different? Because uh, clearly, I, uh, I don't think anyone has been hired from the uh, the Fangraphs business in the past to head up an entire department right away. I would uh, say the head up term terminology here might be uh, slightly off. I know that's been put out there just different places, and maybe that's just a, a matter of wording. But uh, Dave Cameron, he's not. I don't think he's he, – he's never worked for a team. Uh, you guys know him a lot better and met him. He seems like a very bright and, uh, you know, nice guy. I like him. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think he's heading up the entire department by himself, not having any, you know, previous team experience. I think he's going to be a very important voice uh, in time, and if he isn't already, um, and he's going to help build up the department. But they've had a department for a while, you know, a number of years. Uh, Josh Stein, the assistant GM, kind of leads that, and – yeah, Brian McBurney was director of uh, research and development, and he left recently. I believe he landed with the Dodgers. Um, and so this might be, in a way, sort of trying to help, help replace him while, while also pushing forward the objective of you know hiring more people in the next year or so. But uh, I think it's definitely an interesting hire, considering what he's uh, written about and said said about Eric Hosmer. So uh, you wonder how much of that they're taking into account right now. But I think he, he's just getting started, and. Uh, he, he's uh, he's trying to get the lay of the land, so I think it's unfair to expect him to shape the course of the franchise as a newcomer from Fangraphs. Well, speaking of Hosmer, this is the second preview we've done this week where I've been crossing my fingers hoping that he doesn't get signed between the time we record and the time we post the podcast. So is the latest just a, a holding pattern that a same offer is out there that has been out there for quite a while? And do you have any thoughts on why that offer is out there given where the Padres are kind of competitively and the player Hosmer is? Well, that seemed to be the case, the uh, the holding pattern until 
about middle middle of last week. Until then, around then, I hadn't heard about their initial offer, which is made probably in December, changing at all. They, they probably hadn't had you know daily conversations with Scott Boris very much. It's just here's the offer, and uh, you know get back to us, and uh, this is this is what we can do. But uh, in the past week, they've had multiple conversations. Actually, a lot of conversations. I believe they've made multiple offers, so it's probably upped a little since uh, that initial proposal. So. At this point, um, it's obviously, uh, this is risky saying this right now, but um, it's not up to Scott Boris's liking quite yet. But I think uh, it's, it's getting close, and I don't think a guy like Eric Cosner wants to sit out spring training too long. Uh, you know, he's being billed as a guy who can come into, you know, uh, San Diego or stay in Kansas City and be and lead a rebuild and accelerate the rebuild by helping develop these young guys by just setting an example, and that's uh, hard to quantify, but. If you really want to do that, I would think uh, it would behoove you to get into spring training as soon as you can and get to know some people. But at the same time, this is also about numbers. Scott Porras, uh probably, uh, you know, he's looking at a 28-year-old, 28-year-old free agent and a uh, guy who's only going to get one shot at big contract. So he's trying to maximize it. So until, uh, until something gets close, uh, I guess we uh, will have to wait. So before last season... Uh, I believe it was. Will Myers was signed to a, a large contract extension. He was given $83 million over six years with uh, with an option. And he went on to have a season that it wasn't bad by any means. He was still an above average hitter. But if you just go off Fangraph's war, he was about one win above replacement. His defense wasn't particularly great. And he just didn't really seem to take any sort of next great step. So is has something is is some shine come off the apple here? Is Will Myers still the guy in San Diego or is this one of the reasons that they're trying to bring Hosmer in, in in the first place? I think there's some of that. If Will had um you know had a second all star campaign in twenty seventeen, hit forty bombs and stolen forty bases as he proclaimed he helped to do uh, back in spring training in twenty seventeen. Uh yeah, they uh they'd probably ease off on adding another first base and Although, you know, they said all along, where they claim to say all along, that, you know, something that attracted them uh, about Will and uh, caused them to sign to that extension was the fact that he's got flexibility. But you've seen in the past that the outfield, especially center field, and he wouldn't be asked to play center field again. But, you know, his first base defense is pretty good in 2016, and in 2017, he took a step back. So uh, you wonder if there's no, a better better place for him. But, you know, I would think at this point, first base is probably still best for him. But, uh yeah, I think um, Eric Hosmer would address you know certain areas that Will is still uh, figuring things out in, especially because you know Hosmer's been to a World Series and done it, been there, done it. And, uh, Will Myers, um, you know, he's admitted this himself. You know, he talks about this every year and just hasn't taken that next step yet. So uh, it's incumbent on him to uh, do that in 2018, or else you start to wonder, you know, if that was a big mistake giving him that extension. Mm-hmm. It's hard for a, a manager, I suppose, to develop much of a national reputation when his team is winning 60-something or low 70-something wins through no fault of his own, really. But whenever I read an interview with Andy Green or hear him talk, he just sounds like an impressive guy, sounds like the sort of guy who people will be writing glowing profiles about in a year or two when the Padres are good and he's getting a lot of the credit. So if we can beat the pack to Andy Green. Can you give us your observations of his managerial style over the last couple of years, whether it's how he handles the media, how he handles his team, how he manages in-game, what sets him apart from most managers, if anything? I think the in-game strategy, you ask most people, he's 
he's very sharp. He's on top of it. Uh, bullpen usage uh, seems pretty good. Yeah, he's he's not afraid to play small ball, which you know might go against some of his reputation out there as a guy who's uh, really inclined toward using analytics. But you just look at his personnel over the last couple of years. He hasn't had too much to work with, so uh, maybe hard to blame him there. Uh, in terms of media uh, savvy, um, you know I haven't had the longest career in media, but I can say uh, he. He's up there with just about anybody. Um, I think sometimes he would relish the challenge of maybe being a manager in a market like Philadelphia or Boston and, uh, you know, just dealing with uh, daily questions one after the other. But he, he can handle that kind of stuff. He thinks on his feet very quickly. Uh, I think also the other thing with him is uh, maybe some people don't realize is he has an edge and not, not everyone likes him. He's a very likable guy for, for most people, but um, he uh, he's definitely – up some people the wrong way. Just look at uh, Doc Roberts last year uh, with the with the Dodgers and that uh, kind of brouhaha on the field. So he's got he's got a little something extra to him, and um, I, I think uh, he's a guy who's very hands on and has to learn to maybe give more ownership to his coaches and players. And uh, that doesn't mean that uh, you know people don't like playing for him. I think in general most of the players like playing for him, but he's uh, he's grown into the job, and I think the pottery's shown. They have a lot of faith in him by already giving him an extension, and he's the guy they think will lead them into their next playoff berth, whenever that is. Will Myers, of course, is is currently slotted at first base. We'll see what happens if, again, Hosmer negotiations come to a head. But right now, you look up and down the Padres roster, and, and Myers is a pretty good hitter, and Chase Headley could be a decent hitter. There's Manny Margot and Hunter Renfro. I love French Cordero. We'll get to that. But last year, the Padres, I guess it wasn't last year, but two seasons ago, the Padres plucked a player from the Yankees and last season he got a chance to emerge at the big league level and where would you rank among current major league Padres where do you think Jose Perella would rank among the best hitters is he the best hitter on this team right now there was a very strong argument that he was the best hitter on the team last year although that that kind of you know came out of nowhere so it's really hard to say right now he had a uh, you know a finger injury near the end of 2017 uh didn't seem to hit it too great in winter ball in uh, his native Venezuela. So uh, there's, it seems like there's a lot of room for him to regress or, you know, kind of do something in between what he's done before and what he did in 2017. But he's, he's a professional at that. Um, I think at this point you, you would have to think he's not going to hit as well as he did in 2017. He's, he's always hit in winter ball and in Venezuela and he's been known as a guy who has dangerous bad. But uh, yeah, I think uh, it's just, it's just only, realistic to think he's not going to be the best hitter on the team again, um, especially if uh, Will Myers bounces back. So he's an interesting case, Jose Perella, but I, I think he's got he's got to worry also about a lot of competition in left field, which is kind of where he's limited to. He's played some second base, but he's really there for his bat. And if he can uh, take a step forward or you know maintain what he's doing with his bat, I can see him you know quickly falling back to uh, irrelevance. But uh, he did do some interesting things in 2017, so he's definitely a candidate. It was almost exactly a year ago that we had you on, and I asked you the question, what is a Franchi Cordero? Since then, what I've learned is that a Franchi Cordero is an incredibly talented outfielder. Uh, Cordero last year, according to StatCast, was the fastest player on the Padres, one of the faster players in baseball, and he also uh, hit the ball the hardest of anyone on the Padres. So right now, uh, you talk about Perella, his possibility to take a step back, but he probably is still a shoe-in for some regular playing time. You've got Margot in center. You've got Hunter Renfro in right field. He's been a prospect for a while. 
where where is the team on Franchi Cordero and what is sort of his opening to playing time provided he doesn't take too big of a, a step back? I saw something on Fangraphs about him. Did did, did you read that? Job? <laughs> that was that was me. This is my guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's he's a fun player, um, especially if you're watching him in Triple El Paso, where he hit something like 20 triples uh, last season, which is kind of crazy, even though El Paso is a very hitter friendly environment. Um, but yeah, he uh, he's going to be a very strong candidate, I would expect uh, this spring, especially if Perella doesn't maintain what he was doing. He, I know some people think this is uh, BS, but you know he probably has a little momentum from playing playing winter ball, and he was the MVP and rookie of the year in the uh, Dominican uh, Winter League. So he's he's really you know put himself on the map as far as just a guy who has so many tools that if it all clicks. He can be a star, but um, you know there's just no guarantee of that, especially with how poor his play discipline has been in a small sample size. And granted, it's very small, but uh, you look at his track record in the minors; he's just a raw, very raw player still in a lot of respects. So, still young. I think he's 23. He's still got time to develop, but uh, you would hope to give him as many regular bats as possible. And uh, if he can't uh, rein in those play discipline issues, it's going to be hard to keep him on the field all the time. But you're right. He's very intriguing, and I, I don't think they have anyone else like him on this team. So uh, he's going to get a fair shot in spring training, and I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, emerges in left field. I talked about Kazuhisa Makita earlier this offseason when Michael Bauman was filling in for Jeff, and we went through the stats, and we marveled at them. And I mean, I want this to work, certainly. I, I love a submariner who is effective. Can he work with this sort of profile? So he's listed at 5'10". I don't know if that's a, a baseball 5'10 or legitimate. But, I mean, a guy who throws 80 miles an hour and struck out about five batters per nine in Japan, so if anything, you'd expect fewer strikeouts here, he couldn't be less like every other pitcher in the majors at this point. And we were surprised to see that his ground ball rates in Japan were not as extremely high as you would expect from someone with his other numbers. So is this going to work? Obviously, there's a, a fairly long track record of NPB relievers coming over and being effective for a while. So is he going to join that lineage or is he just too different from the dominant mode of pitching in the majors today? Well, sort of playing off that, there, there's not really any track record of a Japanese side armor, um, at least among relievers, coming over and having success. I think uh, it's happened maybe once. I think there was a guy named uh, Shingo Takatsu who uh, did that with the White Sox. Mm. Had a you know decent first season, and then the second season kind of disappeared and never uh, never came back. So, I mean, side armors in general, obviously, is really rare, so that's why you haven't seen uh, too many Japanese side armors. And um, the ones, the few, few that have, haven't really, you know... Uh, you know, made a sustained career over here in the U.S., but he's he's slightly different in that his his arm slot is even lower than most side armors. He's basically his knuckles are basically scraping the dirt when he's releasing the ball, and a lot of times he's not aiming at the bottom of the zone. You can do that; you can hit the bottom of the zone, but he uh, he throws to the top of the zone a lot, which might explain that uh, ground ball rate. Um, so he's yeah, he's uh, he's definitely unique even for a side armor, and he throws like five or six different pitches, which is also kind of interesting for a side armor. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's definitely something to it. He, uh, you know, he hasn't faced too many major league hitters, and I think that plays to his advantage right, right now because uh, they just haven't seen him. I think Andy Green said 
he's going to try to hide them from some divisional opponents in spring training and have them face younger hitters, and that keeps uh, these guys from getting too comfortable against them. But, yeah, he, he only throws in the low 80s with his fastball, really, so... If, yeah. he, uh, if he's command isn't as pinpoint as it was in Japan, he's going to get shelved. But yeah. uh, he's definitely a different look, which helps Andy <laughs> with his uh, bullpen construction. Yeah. So you recently wrote about the question marks in the rotation. I guess that's almost the entire rotation, maybe. Can we <laughs> go through uh, who's more or less questionable? Who do you see as sort of the stable base of the rotation, if there is one? Sure. Well, this is, uh, I think, you could call it a transitional period for them. They're waiting for their top pitching prospects, and there's a few in camp, but they're they're not going to break camp with the team, most likely. They're waiting for those guys to get ready, and there's more guys coming in the minors, like Mackenzie Gore below them, uh, Michelle Baez. Those are their highest upside guys, and these guys right now are uh, being asked to at least hold the fort, and maybe a guy like the Nelson Lamette has real staying power. But, yeah, if you look at it right now, it's Clayton Richard, the uh, veteran leader. Um, he's got a spot. And then uh, Brian Mitchell, whom they uh, acquired, uh, also taking on Chase Hudley's contract in the process, who is also going to get to start off the rotation most likely before possibly moving to the bullpen or something else. But they're going to give him a shot. And then Lament and uh, Luis Perdomo are the other favorites. So you got four guys there, and then you've got a bunch of, you know, even bigger question marks after that, um, battling out for a fifth spot. They might go to a six-man rotation at some point during the season. I don't think that's right away because that hampers the, the opening day roster construction. But I would think among the other guys, non-roster invites included, Tyson Ross actually might have a decent chance of making this team. I know it's uh, extremely early, but people were raving about his bullpen session and saying he looks different than he ever has in the Padres uniform, at least in the last few years. And I know he wasn't there the entire time. He's with the Rangers this past season, but... Uh, Maybe he's gotten healthy and he can uh, at least recapture a little bit of what he once was. But, yeah, I mean, that's obviously a huge question mark. And the rest of the guys like to have Chris Young, a uh, 38-year-old in camp, who uh, also used to be a staple in San Diego. You know, he's he's a big question mark as well. So they've got, you know, yeah, question marks keep that uh, all over the place. I would like to see Perdomo and Franchi Cordero get into some sort of triple hitting contest, but maybe Perdomo <laughs> needs to play more. Uh, it, at this point, AJ Preller has been the Padres general manager for about three and a half years. And in uh, his his win totals have been 74, 68, and 71. Of course, the team has not been necessarily trying to win the last couple seasons as they entered their rebuild. But I don't know if there's more tolerance for losing at the, the ownership level in baseball now. There probably is. But how would you describe the state of the relationship between the uh, the people in charge of the Padres and the person in charge of the Padres roster, given not only the uh, the lack of success, but also, of course, the uh, the disciplinary concerns that Preller has faced because of his own actions. I think there is a collective burden for what happened in uh, 2015. Uh, yes, uh, that was the roster AJ Preller put together, and that was something he sold ownership on, and that was a big mistake. It turned out. But, you know, they, they also got swept up in it. There were new owners at the time with the rookie GM, and I think they all learned big lessons from that. So, yeah, I mean, after after that, they moved on to him really building up this farm system. And, yeah, it's, it's still a question of whether he can build a functioning major league roster that can make the playoffs. Um, a lot of times with Padres, since they don't have the resources of other clubs, they don't have access to, you know, certain players in the top tier of the market or they just can't afford to make mistakes like the Cubs can, so it's uh, it's a slim margin of error when they're going after a person like Eric Hosmer for you know, 100 plus million. Um, but you know, Preller has built up the farm system and he's been given the resources to do it 
to uh, to the point where it's uh, you feel you feel like you know some of these guys just have to hit because of the sheer numbers of it. So they they obviously want to see that through. Let them see that through. So that's why they gave him a contract extension. And I think uh, right now things are pretty good between ownership and Asia Color. You uh, you wonder if either of them is going to be right, and uh, if not, uh, they both suffer for it. But uh, you know, look at the farm system right now. That's kind of where they're you know giving him lots of kudos do you think that there's any sort of opportunity here for the padres with the uh with the chargers no longer in town the padres are now the show they're uh they're the the one show in town and is there an opportunity for them to emerge and and try to i mean i don't know a better way to put it basically mean more to the city just raise their own significance within the city or or is the Padres situation and the Chargers leaving are, are those two essentially independent of one another uh, I think it's uh, definitely a factor I don't know, don't know how much how much of a factor it was Chargers leaving uh, definitely it wasn't you know ideal timing if you're looking at, at it through that lens in 2017 because you know the Padres is basically uh, really early in the rebuild and yeah now they're probably in the middle stages of the rebuild but I also think AJ Preller is not the kind of guy who's going to say yeah we have to be really really patient at some point he's just going to want to be really creative and if they end up landing Eric Cosmer that might trigger some other moves uh, in, the, in the near future and um, he knows he has a lot of prospects to deal from, so uh, he can do something interesting. And that that's not really – he doesn't really care. I don't think about capturing people's attention now that the Chargers are gone. He just wants to uh, – he just wants to deliver a winning product because, uh, you know, he's he, he recently got that extension, so uh, maybe he feels like he can afford to take another risk. But at the same time, I think ownership's a lot more wary of doing something like that. So they're going to be patient still to an extent. Uh, but, yeah, I mean – being the only game in town and having kind of that civic responsibility to try to win, uh, these guys have been losing for a long time. I think they, they do feel some pressure to, uh, you know, make some moves soon and do something different because, you know, the norm for the Padres has been pretty much the same for the last decade or so. It's uh, it's getting pretty pretty old in San Diego. I don't, I don't think a lot of people have too much tolerance for uh more patience for them. Manny Margot obviously is known for his defense, but Eno Saris pointed out last month that he had one of the bigger launch angle and fly ball rate gains in the second half of last season. Didn't translate to that much more offensive production, but a little more slugging percentage. So do you know if that was a, a conscious change, something he picked up from someone else? And do you see him as having significant power potential? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you don't know if the sample size is too small or if that's really notable. It does seem like a significant difference uh, within a season. And yeah, maybe he got swept up in seeing all these uh, guys who are not as big as him and he's not that big uh, hitting home runs. Um, he did have an injury, uh, a leg injury that cost him some time and then he came back and maybe something changed there. Um, that's, that's worth digging deeper into though. Um, that's, uh, that's an interesting topic, but I, I think, uh, yeah, this again goes back to Matt Stairs and seeing what he can do with a uh, young offense. And I think he has slightly more talent. If you're looking at this roster versus last year's uh, Phillies roster, uh, he had a little more talent then, um, but, uh, there's some interesting players here. So if you can kind of rework your magic with some of the young kids you had in Philly and see if it translates here, that'd be good for a guy like Manny Margot. But yeah, I think in the end, he's probably a 10 to 15 home run guy. But you never know with a new ball or uh, you know, all these launch angles, maybe he's a 15 to 20 homer guy. Um, mm-hmm. I think speed is probably his, a little bit of a bigger focus over you know, trying to hit home runs this year because he'd like to steal more bases. But he's, uh, he's a solid gap to gap power guy, I would think, in the end. 
Well, if there are any position battles Mm -hmm. or intriguing players we haven't touched on that you think we should, feel free to drop a a mention in. But we do always end with the traditional forcing the guest to pick a win total prediction for the coming season. So uh, if there's anything you want to add in that we haven't gotten to before that, feel free. But give us a, a number for the Padres wins in 2018. Well, I I mean, this might sound like an excuse, but I feel like the Padres might be the hardest team to peg just based on their run differential and their record uh, last season. And that's mm. obviously due to all these blowouts. Like, it seemed like once they got down a few runs, they would just uh, kind of fold. And that tends to happen, I'm sure, with young players who are just getting feet wet. Uh, but uh, it seems like that, that 71 wins last season in 2017, that's just so... Uh, I don't know, almost fluky, you know, looking at the run differential. But I would think yeah. that run differential... Pythagorean record was 59 and <laughs> 103, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wonder I wonder where that ranks, one of the biggest discrepancies uh, yes. in, in history. Um, but, yeah, I, to stop, uh, you know, um, I guess uh, hesitating on this answer, I would say uh, somewhere in the uh, mid-70s to... So, I guess I need a... I need a actual answer right here so i'm gonna go with 70 75 wins Mm -hmm. okay all right well you can of course follow dennis see how right or wrong his prediction was (laughs) at the athletic san diego and uh, occasionally at the athletic la as well you can find him on twitter at dennis t lynn it is always a pleasure dennis thanks for coming on yeah my pleasure thanks for having me thank you very much that will do it for today and for this week By the way, after Jeff and I finished recording our intro, Marcus Stroman not only deleted his tweet about arbitration, but then expressed interest in talking about a long-term extension. He says, I want to be here, and I want to be here long-term. So, as we were saying, those hard feelings don't necessarily last and don't necessarily impact whether a player actually stays with that team. I should also note that Jason Vargas, whom Jeff mentioned as a prototypical Oriole, signed with the Mets for a very Andrew Kashner-esque two years and $16 million with an option year and incentives. So maybe he was waiting for the Orioles to pick one of those prototypical Orioles pitchers. When they went with Kashner, he signed somewhere else. Or who knows, maybe the Orioles are kicking themselves for not getting their other target. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Thank you for all of the recent contributions. Five listeners who have just joined include Landon Jones, Scott Lowry, Clark Bundy, Bill Terry, and Taylor Triggs. Thanks to all of you. You can join our ever-swelling Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash EffectivelyWild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to everyone who has been plugging away at the Effectively Wild wiki. I think there are something like 100 episodes already summarized or recapped on there. It's been a lot of fun to go back and look at the notes people are leaving. Sam has been browsing them too. He said it's like looking at your old diary. If you go to the Facebook group in the file section, you can find a link to the wiki, also in the show page of Fangraphs. And in the Facebook group, there is a sign-up sheet where you can claim episodes. So if you're going back to listen to any old ones, you can help out the Effectively Wild wiki while you're at it. Also, reminder, everyone, go check out BanishedToThePen.com blog started by Effectively Wild listeners. They are doing written previews of all of the teams that we are previewing on the podcast, so you can go read about the Cubs and the Padres right there, banishedtothepen.com. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, wonderful long 
long weekend in many cases, and we'll be back with the next pair of team previews next week. That will be the Washington Nationals and the Detroit Tigers. Weekends